Hey, welcome in. It's Downtown the Podcast, episode number 112. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell with you from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, where we host the daily show Downtown Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine. Streaming audio on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com. We are brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll talk with a couple of talented actors on the program this time around in just a moment. Mike Farrell of MASH will join us. He is a regular visitor to our radio show for, oh gosh, the last eight or nine years now. And he talks acting, he talks the current state of affairs in the United States of America, and more. Later on, a very interesting conversation with New Zealander actress Rena Owen, who just wrapped up the third season of the hit series Siren on Freeform. Also one of only six actors and the only woman to appear in films directed by both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. It's a nice little sci-fi <laughs> nod there. Yeah, absolutely. So that's coming up a little bit later, but let's get things underway by uh, talking with Mike Farrell. You know him, of course, from MASH several seasons as B.J. Honeycutt on the acclaimed series. I uh, went on to a successful run on a terrific NBC series that we talk about a little bit, Providence, and uh, has, has done a lot through the years as an activist and author very outspoken uh, proponent of ending the death penalty, not just in California, but all around the United States. And we talked with Mike about the state of our nation right now, what's going on in America, how to begin to put things back together, and much more. Here's Mike Farrell on Downtown. Hi, Rich. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Thanks for coming back on with us. Do you still have the quarantine beard? I do, indeed. <laughs> I got a glimpse of that. It was so wonderful to see uh, you and Loretta Swit on Alan Alda's podcast recently. We had we had fun. Alan thought it'd be uh, it'd be nice to take some time and uh, give some kudos to the frontliners who are doing so much for us in this awful situation. And uh, we thought uh, you know getting together is always a fun thing to do. So we thought, why not? Yeah, it was just great. And uh, we were reminded, among other things, that. Many of us learned about how to wash our hands properly from being good students of MASH. Yeah, yeah. that was funny. Somebody did a very interesting cut of uh, some of the episodes. Yeah. Things that were uh, that were appropriate, <laughs> appropriate lessons for the um, for the for the, um, the meantime. Unfortunately, the meantime seems to have stretched and is becoming uh, now time. Yeah, absolutely. How are you doing? How are you and your family doing during this situation? Thanks. We're doing well. Uh, we're obviously frustrated by having to shut down and close everything, but um, it, you know we feel very lucky be, to be able to be uh, uh, still maintain contact. Uh, the Zoom process has become the way to stay in touch with some people, with that you don't have the opportunity to actually see face to face. And um, as you know, I'm sure uh, people are able to gather as long as they maintain uh, safe distances and wear the proper attire and masks and what have you. So I see my children periodically when they come and bring groceries for us because they don't want us to go to the store. My wife has a, uh, a, uh, a compromised immune system, so it makes it, uh, makes it somewhat um, edgy for us to... 
uh, entertain or to do the kinds of things that some people are free to do. And uh, I have to be careful about going out because who knows what I could bring home. Um, so we're um, we're trying to stay hunkered down. All of us trying to do the right thing out there. Uh, but I did see that there are at least some conversations about television and film production resuming. Does that does that seem like a good idea? <laughs> the, I, I heard about that. I haven't uh, I haven't seen any actual. Uh, indication that it's happening, but I, the people were talking about the ways in which it could be done, and it would really require, it seems to me, uh, almost a quarantine setup where everybody who comes into this situation, cast and crew and everybody, um, would have to be tested and make sure that they're clear of the virus, and then they'd have to be willing, it seems to me, to be quarantined together for the period of time that they were working. And that's, that's not going to be a simple thing to take uh, to, for people to, uh, to do. Mike, what does it say about where we are as a nation that the simple act of wearing a mask to protect other people has become politicized? Well, yes. I mean, we're in, we're in a very different and very odd place, I think, in, in our country. Um, uh, in my view, the president has demonstrated a, a kind of... Uh, unwillingness to honor norms and uh, uh, do he does away with safeguards that are built in through tradition not by law and, and as a result it's it's kind of a become a kind of uh, 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 suit yourself you know a potluck mm. uh, situation where people can just take or do or feel and say whatever they choose because the man who is heading the country feels the freedom to do that, and I think it's I, I think it's a very um, it's a very dangerous. Frankly, I think it's a very dangerous time, but it's certainly a, a, a frustrating time for those of us who care about the country. And, and I can understand the desire of people to have less government and, and less government intrusion in their lives. But I, this pandemic has shown that there are some things that the federal government is good for, and providing some sort of national leadership would have, I think, been much more preferable to this every-state-for-themselves approach. Well, I couldn't agree more, Rich. I mean, when, you know, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, people didn't say, um, well, what are you going to do, Connecticut, or what are you going to do, Maine, or what are you going to do, Michigan? Uh, we, as a nation, responded. And I think when a, a, a disease, uh, an invisible threat, not only threat, an invisible demon comes our way and and not only threatens the lives and the, uh, the livelihoods of, uh, of all of us, but kills over 120,000 Americans in the last, what, four months? Um, it seems to me that uh, a little inconvenience <laughs> is not too much to ask for people who otherwise uh, would have certainly stood up and done what was required of them by the government uh, in order to face an enemy. Uh, this is an enemy that I think needs to be dealt with in much the same way. Do you, uh, after all this, do you still feel that people or, or Americans specifically are basically good people? Of course I do. I think I think people are good, basically good people. I don't think it's limited to being Americans. I think people want to be, they want the same fundamental things in life, and I think they uh, do the best they can in terms of um, being fair um, in the terms of the way they go about things. That's 
probably best uh, best demonstrated when we have uh, a weather calamity, a tornado, a flood. Uh, uh, you see neighbors reaching out to neighbors. You see people who normally wouldn't uh, even think twice about uh, taking in a stranger doing just that when the circumstances provided say, look, uh, human humankind is in trouble here. People people who are our brothers and sisters, whether we sometimes want to accept that or not, um, are in danger or are inconvenienced to a degree that is threatening. We we respond to that, and I, I think uh, I think I'm a, I'm a great believer in the in the decency of people and the willingness of people to um, to put themselves out in support of others. We're talking with Mike Farrell here on downtown. We're also in the midst of a. Of a fight and Americans taking to the streets uh, to support social justice in this country and we've seen this before but I don't know it feels it feels different to me do you think that that we've turned a corner in the awareness of the American people that we have to make some positive change yes I do I think what happened in Minneapolis uh, with George Floyd's murder um, was so obvious I and mean, it was so raw it was so visible with that officer with his hand in his pocket and a kind of unconcerned dare dare you to speak um if you disagree with what i'm doing look on his face um i think it it was televised not only across the country but around the world and i think for americans it was a shock we have two or those of us who are not uh, people of color have too often found ways to accept the um, the explanations that have been given for the kind of injustices that have occurred too many times um, between people in authority and people of poor people and or people of color. And I think I think it sort of writ large for everyone that this is a real phenomenon in our country. And we are um, guilty of having ignored it for far too long. And I think what we're seeing in the streets and what we have seen since that time are people saying, enough. It's time that we begin to try to right the, uh, the wrongs that have been done for so long to so many. Um, and we've looked the other way. When you talk about systemic racism in this country, you can't help but talk about something you've fought against for several years, and that's the death penalty, which, as we know, disproportionately affects people of color and poor people. Of course, yeah. There was a um, there have been large editorials that have been done um, uh, recently making that connection for people. I think if you look at our criminal justice system, you'll see that the uh, the mo- most of the people who suffer as a result of uh, our the wrong-headedness of some of our system are the poor and and people uh, of uh, minority groups, and the the statistics are clear that in the United States the people who are subject to the death penalty are um, mostly today the I think the, the majority of people on death row are people of color, and the next number are the poor. Um, and the wealthy people who can afford a defense don't go to don't go to jail much less much less go to the death uh, death chamber. So I think I think we're, this is a relatively speaking a small part 
of the uh, of the recompense that is going to be needed in this country, and that is to do away with the things that what people don't understand is that do harm to all of us. The death penalty, in my view, uh, uh, actually was stated uh, by one of the founders of this country, Jeremy Rush, who said uh, the capital punishment demeans everyone associated with the act. And I think that's right. It brutalizes us all. When you hear people, and you've always done a great job of, of making your point, but in a way that, that is not offensive to other people, but what do you say to those folks who, who see all of these protests as some sort of assault on traditional American values? Well, I think we have to... It, it takes courage to sort of take a look at what you just described as traditional American values. <clears throat> I think people have said to themselves, this is the way it's been for all these years, and why should we change it? Well, if you examine it and you find that uh, leaving it as it has been, um, today, for example, we're, taking, we're finding people taking down statues of people who were effectively traitors, people who mm. fought against this, the, 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 this country, fought against the laws of this country in order to defend the idea of human slavery and maintain the process of human slavery. Um, so we have just, you know, the day they tore old Dixie down is sung by uh, Joan, uh, Joan uh, Baez, one of my favorites. But I think the, the sort of historic um, cleansing of things like the Confederacy, the, the whole idea of the Confederacy, is something that's been done because we don't really want to get into the taking of responsibility for some of the things that we've allowed done ourselves or allowed to have happen by others and 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 as I said before looked the other way. So we I think we um I think good old American traditions are are easy to defend, but I think we have to be a little more thoughtful about what it is that they actually mean before we are quick to defend them. And when people talk about destroying history, I, I, I chuckle a little bit because, uh, as you know, I'm a, I'm a history teacher in, in high school, and yeah. the history that, that I teach is very different than the history I learned as a student all those years ago. I was never taught in school about the killing of Emmett Till. I was never taught in school about the Tulsa massacre. Those things right. were left out of the history that we were given. Sure, we were told that George Washington never told a lie. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, there is that there is that tendency to kind of want to whitewash, forgive the use of the pun, but to kind of whitewash history and just not get into those things that are difficult and that it requires some explanation and beyond explanation requires some contrition. Um, but it's time. I think you, when, when you've got. Uh, so many people in such distress in this country today, um, aside from the COVID-19, um, you've got people in live in distress just because of the color of their skin or just because of the fact that they can't afford to uh, live in a home. Um, then it seems to me that there we have to look at what America is really about and pick it up take responsibility for what's wrong and fix it. What's our way forward out of this? We seem so very polarized as a nation. How do we get past this and, and begin to heal this divide? 
Well, there are any number of things. I'm not sure how political you want me to get, but we have a big vote coming up in November. Um, I think the country is in a very, very, very sad state, and it can be changed, but it's going to take a lot of hard work and a lot of hard, a lot of good uh, people doing the right thing and accepting the responsibility of citizenship. Um, I, I, I have, I have a lot of. Um, I have a lot of views you probably don't want to get into. Oh, no, no. You you let it go, Mike. You let it go. <laughs> we need this. Well, I, I'm, I'm a believer that, uh, that President Trump is, uh, is not well. I think, he's, uh, I think he's got a very serious psychological problem, and it, it, it means to me that he's not the liar that people can t- um, claim he is. I believe he thinks he's telling the truth, but whatever the truth is of the moment is what suits him, and I think that's a part of a of a psychological illness called uh, malignant narcissism, uh, and it's uh, something that uh, some psychiatrists have had something to say about. Um, but I think the damage is the danger he presents to us is is seen is visible every day, um, and I think we have to we have to change the leadership in this country um, because he's being. He's being used in, in some ways by people who mm-hmm. see that his his he can he can put forward their agenda in a way that they would not be able to get away with it otherwise. Um, so I think I think we have a lot of hard um, a hard road ahead of us in terms of how we reestablish who we are in the world. Uh, I think the, uh, our, our nation has fallen in the eyes of the people of the world around uh, around us and uh, has fallen in the eyes of many of the people in this country. Um, and I think, I, I, I frankly just, uh, I just finished writing a piece that I, I'm putting out just as a thought, and that is that um, I don't believe, I think it is not acceptable to the state of mind, state of being of the president, uh, President Trump, to accept defeat. I think he will do anything he can to not allow himself to be defeated in this upcoming election, and that means potentially cheating and lying and stealing and doing a lot of bad things. But it also offers the possibility that if he sees that he is not going to succeed, I have a feeling that what he will then, in order to save himself uh, and his necessary psychological construct, he will um, resign and arrange with Vice President Pence for a pardon that would be necessary. We, we were just talking about that scenario here here yesterday, but you know, I'm, I'm concerned about the integrity of the election i'm concerned with voter suppression and and i guess what what saddens me along with everything else right now is i grew up at a time when you respected both parties and there were there were good people in the republican party i I think back to the everett dirksons of the world and others along the way that, that you could look up to and they might have a different approach than you had but everybody wanted the same result and and to me what's frightening in this scenario we're seeing now is the willingness of some people in the president's party to allow him and especially the attorney general to bend twist and some would say crush the rule of law 
Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And and it's it, that's one of the one of the great damages that's being done to us. And when I said we've got a hard road ahead, it's going to take some significant time and some really heroic actions on the part of some very courageous people to reestablish who we are. But I think I think part of it part of it comes from the the, the threat we're under in terms of COVID because everybody kind of gets uh, a little more willingness to take a look at what's significant in their lives now as a result of this. People, we know that it's it strikes uh, people, the, the first responders, people, most of whom, many of whom are people of color and, and uh, Latinos, um, uh, people who have don't have the comfort that I frankly have or I can lock down in my house with my wife and be taken care of to the de- degree that I'm we're safe. Some of those people don't have that. And, and I think that reality has heightened everybody's willingness to kind of take another look and recognize that we need to make some changes, some very serious changes in this country. Uh, so I, I think I'm with you. I fear that those people who are um, a little outside the the norm. Um, the, the you mentioned the uh, attorney general. I think he's a, I think he's a danger to us, um, and he has this concept of the uh, essentially the kingship that the president uh, mm. maintains. Um, and I think I think there are many people, as I said earlier, that uh, that, have, that have tolerated this man and what he's done because it uh, it, it advances their personal agenda. But I think that there are enough of us now who recognize what has happened and painfully accept some responsibility for ha- allowing it to happen, and are now going to see to it that uh, that things change. My my own view is he won't allow himself to lose, and I think that um, before if if it becomes clear to him that he's going to lose, he'll resign. I sure hope so. That gives me a little hope, Mike. Thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> and I think I think the requirement would have to be that uh, he would make a deal with Vice President Pence to give him a pardon that he would uh, be pardoned for anything that would be because he he won't uh, allow himself to be put in put in prison or or uh, charged with some of the crimes that I think people know that he's been guilty of. So so I, I think it's an out for him, and I think he's too wily not to recognize it. But that's only if things begin to look as dismal as they appear to be beginning to look for his reelection. Mike Farrell with us on Danton. And Mike, before we let you go, can we throw a couple listener questions your way? Please, sure. Uh, this is a great question. I've wondered this myself. I mentioned the show Providence. I love that show. Wonderful series on NBC. Uh, why hasn't that ended up in reruns somewhere on cable? That was such a good series. Uh, it's a good question. I don't know the answer. Uh, I agree with you. It was a wonderful show. Um, you probably remember our conversation earlier on where I, you know, I'd done MASH and I didn't see the reason to do another. <laughs> right. With, with less than that. And I got that script, and I remember I remember saying, "This is too, this is too good. It'll never go on the air." <laughs> and uh, my agent said, "Well, nonetheless, they want to meet you." And I said, "Okay." And we met, and they said, "Yeah, it's going to go on the air, and we'd like you to do it." And I was I was just as th- 
uh, I was thrilled to to go back to work, and I was thrilled to to work on that show with those wonderful people. Uh, we were canceled too early um, by uh, the executive in charge of NBC at the time um, because he had another show he wanted to put on the air, which of course failed. Um, and it, it may be that there are not enough episodes for them to syndicate, mm-hmm. so that uh, that may be why it never has uh, has been repeated. But I I agree with you. I think it's a wonderful show and uh, and, and deserves more than it got. Also, somebody wanted to know, and we know how close and how close the Mash Cast continues to be. But was there ever a time when you and Alan weren't getting along? Personally, and how did you work around that to do scenes together? Oh no, no. Alan and I became friends immediately, and um, because of his generosity and because of his uh, extraordinary spirit, we we became friends immediately. We remain so today. Um, the The cast was really extraordinarily homogenous. We just uh, people just got along, and and I think. I remember coming back from um, uh, one of the hiatuses, you know, after every season we'd have a few months off, and I had done some work in different parts of the world, uh, um, and came back and I sat down with Alan and I said, are you getting what I'm getting out in the world about the way people respond to this show? And he said, yes. And he said, it really gives me some concern that we really, that we have to, we have to double down and make sure that everything we do and everything we say lives up to what you know what we what makes us proud about the show and everybody everybody got on board and said this there's something here that we're doing that is respond to which people are responding the world over and we can't fail them so we just got to be be doubly sure that we do this with the, 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 the most integrity that we possibly can. I mean, we didn't know until after the show was over that it was going to become a social phenomenon. But it, uh, what we did know was that it was enormously popular and very powerful in terms of the, the impact it had on people. Well, and, and that goes for the cast. We've had Loretta on. We had Jeff Maxwell on recently. And uh, you're just... Again, looking back with such fond memories, not just at the show and the work that was done, but those those deep personal relationships. Indeed, indeed. Loretta and I call ourselves brother and sister. Uh, Alan and I will always be uh, very, very, very close friends. And the same, you know, I, Gary left. Gary is now on our email chain, <laughs> and uh, uh, we've lost, unfortunately, Harry and Bill and. Uh, David and God, Larry, it's, it's, it's sad to, uh, to be at this age and realize that uh, that which was is no longer in too many ways. But um, it, it, was a, it was a gift that I will always cherish. And uh, having been there and having been able to be part of it is, makes me the luckiest actor that ever walked. Well, it's always a gift for us to get to talk with you, Micah. Thanks, as always, for being so generous with your time and carving out some for us. Uh, be well. Uh, stay safe, you and your family, uh, getting through all this, and we'll talk again down the road. Thanks, Rich. I'd love to. Well, as always, a very insightful conversation with Mike Farrell. I, he has that knack of being able to see things and explain things in a way that I don't I mean, Maybe people who are opposed find him offensive, but I, I think he tries to take into account 
the viewpoints and the feelings of others and does it in a fairly respectful fashion. Yes. I mean, he, he presents ideas that it, it makes it very non-confrontational and, and informational, uh, which are, are tough things to do at times. Yeah, as polarized as we are now. But Mike, Mike didn't pull any punches this time around in the, what he thinks of the current administration and, and what could happen and what needs to happen here this fall. So if you don't like Mike's politics... Well, hopefully you like his acting, too. But either way, we always enjoy having him on with us. We'll take a break. Our friends from Cross Insurance with a message. When we return, actress Rena Owen here on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Our next guest on Downtown has starred for the last three seasons on the hit Freeform series, Siren, as Helen Hawkins, a hybrid. A hybrid of what, U.S.? Well, if you don't know, you got to watch the show. Ah, we'll find out. We talk with Rena Owen about uh, Siren and about her long career in the business here on Downtown. Rena, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, having me this afternoon. Well, you just wrapped the third season of uh, Siren, which has become a huge success. And it's it's that rare show that the audience loves, but the critics love it, too. Like a 94% thumbs up on Rotten Tomatoes. What is it about this show that's made it so successful? I think right back to the original uh, script for the pilot was the concept of a world that was totally original, totally unique, and had a marketplace. I mean, essentially, the show is a show about what happens when a real-life mermaid comes to land. And so, it, you know, it has the formula of well-known TV shows like Grimm with something very similar to the show, but it's a whole new topic, and it's, it's very organic, and it's very authentic, and the characters are very identifiable in the small coastal community so there's a little something for everybody it, it kind of crosses a lot of boxes too in terms of like your, your kind of everyday little town community kind of drama and then you've got the horror elements going on with top level predators mermaids and I think you know there's there as I learned in my research there's an enormous appetite in the world, uh, an enormous following of, they even have the comic conventions for mermaids and mermen. Um, you know, I think the next topic may be unicorns, which we <laughs> yet to see in TV series. Um, but the thing that made our show different is unlike the mermaids we all grew up with, which were very beautiful and enticing and intoxicating, our mermaids are like that, but they're also top level predators and they will bite the head off a shark <laughs> and well, that's what they'll show the edge is the fact that they are dangerous well absolutely and your character helen hawkins has well let's let's just say an interesting family history 
Please hit me, Doug. And brief, the town is, you know, the pioneer, the ancestor of Bristol Cove is Ted Powell's great-great-grandfather. And the story was is that he fell in love with a mermaid and had a child, which was a hybrid. And from that would have been Helen's great-grandmother, and then her mother came from that, and then Helen's. So my character is actually one eight mermaid. So I'm a hybrid. And for most of probably Helen's life, she's always thought she was the only one. And it's, she's been like in the closet with the secret until the real mermaids and mer people start coming to land. And then she suddenly becomes a sanctuary and a safe haven for them. And she has all the history and is able to help them and facilitate them. And, of course, Ted Pownall, played by the wonderful David Cubitt, he is, he's pretty much like the mayor of Bristol Cove. We come from that same ancestor, the founder of our town, but he was he grew up thinking that his great-great-grandfather had a, a child with a prostitute. So it's only been in this last season, season three, that he's come to find out the truth, that mermaids and mermen are real and that his great-great-grandfather fathered a, a mer child um, because his son is the leading guy, the leading character. Ben has gotten very romantically involved with our leading mermaid. So you had that going on there for a while to a thruple, you know, something that was very different. Um, uh, and, and then you've got someone like me who kind of satisfies the ones in the mature category who wants something with a little bit more weight and a little bit more drama. And then, of course, you've got... It's, it's a young adult platform, Freeform, so it's first and foremost for young adults. And uh, it, it has ticked a lot of boxes. And to date, it has been Freeform's most successful show in terms of how many people watch it and in terms of international sales. So right now, we're waiting to find out if it will be renewed for season four. Well, I, I sure hope so, because it, it's so wonderfully done. And uh, and a tip of the cap to, to Eric Wald and, and Dean White for creating such a, a, a thoroughly thought-out universe. There are so many great characters, the depth, the backstory of everybody. They've, they've just, they've done their work and, and made it a fascinating world to watch. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm going to add the name into that mix that make, has made all the difference as our showrunner, Emily Whitesell. So she has been our showrunner since the pilot. She also is a fellow writer, so often her and Eric write scripts together. And they're just, they're just so on the pulse. I mean, there's a lot of social commentary goes on in our stories without it being on soapboxes or without it being in your face or without it being on the nose. It's a bit like what Seth MacFarlane does with the Orville. You know, that's the kind of fantasy Star Trek world, but there's a lot of social social commentary underneath the, the, the facade of his show. And when we think about the pilot of Siren, what brought our first mermaid to land is a very real environmental issue around the world where seabeds are being stripped through mostly greed. Uh, it's happening in New Zealand. It's happening everywhere. The seabeds sea, sea are being stripped of food um, by commercial uh, trawlers and all the rest, which means these deep-sea predators have, uh, having to come closer to the surface to 
fine food. And the sister, when Sister Donna gets caught up in a net and and captured by the military who literally study her, but that's what brings our leading character, is just a phenomenal Eileen Powell, uh, brought her character to land to find her sister. And so this environmental issue has remained part of the storyline because our other two leads are environmentalists, uh, they're marine biologists, uh, a new character came into play in third season and he's on this big kind of global journey to clean up the plastic out of our ocean. So, um, you know, I, I love that. I think clever television and clever film is able to do a bit of both, give you a little bit of fantasy, give you a little bit of escapism, but also give you a little bit, excuse me, <coughs> food for thought. Absolutely. We're talking with... A little with- bit of food for thought in the mix there. We're talking with Rena Owen on downtown. Well, the film that uh, first brought you to people's attention all around the world was Once We're Warriors. And, and could you have imagined, did you have any sense when you were making this film that your role as Beth would be something that people would still be talking about and raving about more than 25 years later? I had a strong, not necessarily that, but I had a strong sense that it had um, the potential to do well, and I remember saying to our director, this is a really important film, because it was based on a novel, and I remember reading the novel, and I could not put it down, and at the end of that book, I remember thinking, God, whoever wrote this lived this life, because it was so authentic and organic, and I also thought, if this book is ever made into a film, that is a role to die for, and three, four years later, we made the movie. Um, But I thought it had a lot of potential because it dared to deal with subject matters, uh, Mm. issues that we all knew went on in our communities, but nobody talked about things like sexual abuse or domestic violence or alcoholism in the family. And these, of course, they're topics now. I mean, God, you just look at the Me Too movement. Um, In fact, I remember a few people on social media said, oh, best. You know, from Once the Warriors was the original uh, Me Too <laughs> character. But back in those days, you know, people weren't really ready for it. Um, and so it kind of got a bit swept under the carpet uh, to a certain degree. And I remember here in America being on a press junket and they were kind of saying no to inquiries from community groups. And um, I said, why are you saying no? This is your audience. And they said, well, we don't want to market this as a film about domestic violence. And I said, but that's what it is. Mm, <laughs> it's right. domestic violence. And I said, you've got the perfect PNR, P&A campaign, which you don't even have to pay for. America was in the middle of the O.J. Simpson case, which was all about domestic violence and, and ultimately death. And the, the reply to that I got was, well, oh, well, you know, you know, everybody's kind of sick of the O.J. Simpson case. Everybody's <laughs> over it. No, they weren't. They sat glued to their television <laughs> for another three months. So, you know, had there been a bit more boldness, but I also respect that you get these things that are new and they, they're a bit too close to home and they're a bit like you're not sure how to. But anyway, they marketed it as a film about gangs, which is not a good idea in America because America makes the best gangster movies. Um, so it, it, it was a missed opportunity. I mean, if they'd gone big and bold and kind of said, hey, we've got a film out there just like what 
being seen on TV right now with the O.J. Simpson case. We've got this movie. It may have been very different, but, you know, let's remember this. It was 25 years ago, and, of course, now we're talking about things that just weren't even spoken about 25 years ago. Uh, but that film, to this day, I still get more attention for that rather than the two Star Wars I did that film also, to independent filmmakers out there or filmmakers or actors or writers, that movie was made on $1.2 million American dollars in 34 days, and it made Time Magazine's top 10 list of the best movies in the world. And, uh, and I'm going to say this, it always comes down to strength of story. If you've got a, a strong story and that it's it feels original and it feels organic and authentic. It's like siren. Those ingredients always work, you know, when it taps into aspects of, of humanity. And and I think, you know, really relevant things come up in these past three to four months while we've been on lockdown, because uh, often in smaller countries, including my own New Zealand, you know, the arts are often seen as a luxury. And they're often, you know, budgets get cut. For, for artistic things, but if you look at the season of COVID-19 and our lockdown, what did everybody turn to? They turned to the arts, they turned to television, they watched films, they pulled out their old music, they pulled novels off their bookcases, they started reading, and I just don't, I can't imagine what we would have done as a civilization if we didn't have the arts to turn to in this four months of lockdown. By the way, you mentioned your home country of New Zealand. You're a second guest from New Zealand. We talked with uh, the wonderful Melanie Linsky uh, about a year ago. And my goodness, when, when you send people here from New Zealand to America, you're sending us some awfully talented folks, yourself included. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Melanie. I've known Melanie since she was a teenager, and she got launched. Her and Kate Winslet got launched at the same time, and Peter Jackson's first successful film, um, Heavenly Creatures, which was based on a real-life story where these two teenage girls killed a mother. And um, Peter had done a couple of movies before then, horror and gore kind of movies, but Heavenly Creatures was the one that got critical acclaim, and it was a similar time as once for Warriors. So we all travelled the world pretty much together and would pop up at the same film festivals or the same places like in Venice or in Germany. And Heavenly Creatures also made Time Magazine's top ten list that year. So for our little country of less than five million people, yes, we had two movies on that top ten list, uh, 1994 of Time Magazine. And for a small population, we do do well I mean, we're a typical parochial, small-town suburbia place like what happens with small communities and small populations, but we're incredibly advanced in a lot of other ways. I mean, even if you look at, say, women's issues, we were the first woman in the world to get the vote. We have not had one female president, what we call them prime ministers like Canada. We've had three. We've had three well, yes, and, and we're incredibly jealous of the one you have now who has done such a great job of handling the virus. She, she, she has. It's been exceptional leadership, and they just took responsibility. And, 
and it just they locked it down very quickly. And also, too, places like New Zealand, like Hawaii, like Iceland, small islands have a better chance of it because they can lock the borders. It's small population, so you can do contact tracing. Uh, yeah, maybe things would have been different here with different um, leadership, but that's another whole topic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we kind of... You know, we, we've seen the consequences now with with numbers going up. And I just, because I'm past 50, I'm very diligent. You know, I turn down group gatherings because I just don't want to put myself at risk. I still wear a mask. I wear gloves. I obviously, I go out and I have my daily walks and I pick up my groceries. But um, I just don't want to get sick, you know. And so um, I just don't want to think I'm untouchable. Or arrogant that it's never going because it can happen to anybody. And what they're finding now is it's more and more in their twenties and their thirties, right? Testing uh, 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 positive. So um, I, I, I love life, and I'd like to live a long, long life. And um, you know, once you pass fifty, the saying's true: every day above ground is a good day. <laughs> so I'm not going to mess with it. Yeah, I'm not going to push my luck. I'm nope. not going to mess with it. I'm actually. Getting back to New Zealand next month to do a movie, to do another independent movie, which is going to be quite a very important and special film for our country because it's based on a trailblazing, iconic legend, uh, a woman called Dame Fina Cooper, who led the the land marches in the 70s to try and fight for for, for land, uh, land back to the Indigenous people. So it's... um, it's one of those kind of roles, and there's going to be three actresses, one for pre-20, one for 20 to 50, and then I'll pick up 50 to 80. Uh, but those scenes in her 80s and her 70s are scenes that are kind of the best-known moments of her kind of legacy. So New Zealand's gone back into production. I mean, James Cameron and all his crew are back down there. They're back shooting, you know, uh, Avatar Productions back up and running. I'm not sure if Amazon's back up and running with Lord of the Rings, but because they've been able to contain the virus uh, with very strict disciplines and doctrines in place, I mean, right now they're panicking a little bit because they've had two people who've got tested positive, and it's coming from people who are coming in from overseas. Right. So when I arrive, I'm going to have to do two weeks in quarantine. And that's just the way it is before I can go into rehearsals and production. And then I'm really hoping that I get to come back and and go back to Vancouver to do season four. Uh, I think the challenge for a lot of studios uh, who've all had to push shows or cancel shows, or the majority have pushed their shows to 2021. So now it's a logistical, it's a matter of logistics of how on earth do you figure out how to shoot all your different shows with studios that are closed or or borders that are closed. Canada's border is still closed. Um, So, but I like to think that that we'll go to season four and it may not happen until next year, but I'd really miss it, you know, because it's a a great world we've created, like you said, and it's a remarkable world. And we're just so blessed by such clever writers. They're so ahead of their time. They really are. They've written episodes that have literally then gone on to play out in life. I mean, we were issued, there was one episode at the end of season 
uh, too, where we all got on under martial law and locked up. <laughs> it was just uncanny. And then we have stunning directors and we have an amazing crew and we really, we're very close as a cast and crew now that we've done three seasons and we all enjoy our show. And and I love Helen. I love playing Helen. She's a, she's a gift of a character and I would really miss her and I'd miss our cast and crew if it got cancelled. So fingers crossed we renew. I'd also like to put it out there that I'd love to have another shot at another Star Wars and another one of my fellow countrymen that's done extraordinarily well, of course, has been Taika Waititi. Yes, indeed. Who, I, um, I loved uh, Jojo yeah. was such an amazing movie. Oh, yeah, and of course, he, he made his mark. He'd done a few independents that did really well globally, and that's what kind of opened the door for him here in Hollywood. And the one he really first and foremost went off with was uh, Thor, Ragnarok. Right. Um, it was, you know, the, it was a huge success for him, which then meant he could pretty much do anything. And uh, he's now, uh, you know, he's doing a couple, he's, he's attached to a lot of things, but one of these things is to co-write and direct another Star Wars. So, um, you know, I'd love a shot. I'd love a shot. Well, we would be remiss, too, if we... If we failed to mention that you're part of one of the most exclusive clubs in cinematic history. Uh, was it only <laughs> six actors who can say what you can say? I know. Is it, you know, and I didn't, I had no idea about that fact until I was actually at a comic con convention and a fan told me many years ago. And at that point it was only five. He said, you know, you're only among five other actors in the world. And I said, no, I had no idea. And now it's, but I, I'm still the only actress that's right. worked with Lucas and Spielberg. So, yeah, not bad for a little girl from, New, from, <laughs> the, from the sixth of New Zealand who grew up milking cows. <laughs> <laughs> well, all, 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 all things are possible, eh? Absolutely. Well, we wish you continued success and good health. Uh, have a wonderful time in New Zealand. And like you, we'll keep our fingers crossed for a fourth season of the wonderful series, Siren. Rena, it's been a delight to talk with you. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Oh, you too. Thank you for having me, and hopefully we'll do it again in the future with more juicy stuff to talk about. <laughs> That'll be wonderful. Thank you and stay safe and stay well. That's Rena Owen from the Freeform series Siren, keeping her fingers crossed for a season four. There our thanks to Rena. Thanks to Mike Farrell as well, and thanks to you for joining us this week. We remind you the podcast is brought to you each time out by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown, the podcast.